Kia ora, I'm Andrew Whiteside and today I'm speaking with Brent Coots, a researcher, historian, writer and teacher about his new book, Crossing the Lines. It chronicles the lives of three homosexual men, Harold Robinson, Ralph Dyer and Douglas Morrison, who during the Second World War entertained the Allied troops as female impersonators in the Kiwi and Tui concert parties. This was at a time when homosexual sex was illegal and could lead to court-martial and imprisonment. Here then is Brent Coots. Brent Coots, fantastic to see you again. I attended a, a, a it, was, it wasn't really a speech that you gave yeah. recently, it was a presentation about the book. So really nice to connect with you again and congratulations on this book. I've, Thank I've, you. I've been reading it and really fascinating, but a labour of love, it's taken 10 years. Yeah, um, I was made a Royal Society of New Zealand teaching fellow and so basically you had a whole year to read, which was so good paid year to le- to read in an office at the University of Auckland looking for a project uh, to write on and during that year I started interviewing Harold Robinson and connecting with his story which led me to research Ralph Dyer and of course um, Douglas Morrison so the three the three men's lives um, so I started in 2009 and it slowly unfolded. Um, I guess I've done other projects in that 10 years, so it hasn't been full-time on the book. But you do need that period to begin to find other men, other characters, um, to progress it. And, and, I, and I did do a couple of years looking at the court-martial files, and it actually took three years to get permission to do that. So 10 years go fast, really, when you've got lots of bits you're connecting. It must be quite daunting because it's quite a a, a thick book. I mean, it's over 260 pages. So to find all this information and then try and condense it down into a narrative that A, makes sense and is interesting, is that's a hell of a thing to to have to do. Yeah, and of course, so you you, you write your original... My original draft, I think, was... Oh, well into the mid-24, uh, you know, 25 chapters, wow. <laughs> which, of course, don't get published. Um, uh, so you kind of overwrite it, and then, you, and then, I, then I edit it down um, and rewrite it. Um, the, the story, I wanted it to be a biography about the three men. Um, I wanted it to be about the concert parties, so it's a little bit of uh, entertainment history. Um, and so it's, it's about joining that together. But I also wanted it to be about the homosexual soldier in the New Zealand military during World War II. I wanted to try and include as many soldiers as I could find because I really did think, well, if I don't do it, no one else is going to include these other men and they remain nameless in history. So it was about recovering queer history. Uh, my three men have a big profile and they have a big story. And so some of the other men I found are just, you just find a little bit of information that may be a paragraph, two paragraphs. No one's going to write a book on them, but I didn't want to leave them out. So in the end, I actually did a big count up the other day and it's 50 Mm. uh, queer men, if you want to use that term, um, that I found of which about 35 or 36 are profiled in some depth. 10 are from court martial files, so I can't mention their name, but I do mention the cases. You bring up the, the court martial cases. Yep. Now, of course, the histories you present cover the, the three men in particular yep. from when they're young to yep. essentially their death. So 
what I find interesting is that the the bulk of the book probably is about their wartime history yep. and then shortly after the war. But it's about a time in history. I, I came out in the 80s. So mm. it's a time in history that my generation knew very little about. Mm. I never encountered men from that generation when I was coming out. So it's fascinating at a time when it was um, illegal. Mm -hmm. New Zealand was quite homophobic. You could be court-martialed for it. And yet there was still this vibrant cultural life going on, which yeah. is surprising. They, they formed a community before the war. All, all three men are very comfortable with their sexuality before the war. They're out. Um, um, they're, they're unapologetic. Um, so I was able to... Uh, there's a chapter on Dunedin, pre-war queer community... And that was, I actually really enjoyed researching that. Um, I live in Auckland, but it was really great to actually not be Auckland-centric and actually say, oh, what was is, what is queer community in New Zealand in another place, in Dunedin? Um, at Ralph and uh, Douglas are in Auckland, so there's a chapter on their pre-war life. So you, you begin to find out about their, them as individuals, um, their formative experiences, the type of people they are. They meet during the war. Um, they never really encounter any any real homophobia or any barriers to being the complete person that they are. And, and why do you think that is? I think they had very strong personalities. <laughs> I don't think you messed with them. Harold, Harold there's one incident where um, someone does um, uh, call Harold names and he knocks them out. Uh, so he wasn't about to... to um, take that in any, um, be hassled by anyone else. I think you also write about the fact that they were um, team players, essentially, yeah. and they had the attitude of they mm. wanted to, to be part of a community, they were mm. good soldiers, and so it wasn't as though they were cowering in the background, mm. afraid of who they are. They were honest and open to a degree, mm. and therefore they, they became accepted by their fellows. I think a lot of queer men in the past always looked to find a role a role that's useful, a role that gives them purpose, um, a role that brings them towards inclusion within the group or the or the or the community that they are living in. Uh, so Harold finds a role as a Batman, so a personal servant to an officer, and it just happens to be um, uh, John Marshall, who later becomes Prime Minister of New Zealand, a National Party Prime Minister. Um, he enters Parliament in about forty-six. Um, He's a rather conservative figure, so it's a really interesting relationship. This very um, flamboyant and exuberant young man is his Batman, uh, who in the evenings is wearing woman's clothes and performing as a woman on stage for the battalion concert party. Um, so they all found these roles, and I guess for Ralph and Douglas, the role is within the Kiwi concert party in the Pacific, and for Harold, it's with the Tui concert party and this role as a Batman. And the other, the other men I found, they all found sort of roles. A lot of them are doing clerical work, secretarial work, but just as much there will be soldiers we don't know about who were at the front line. Their role was right there fighting. There seems to also have been almost a pragmatic approach by the military. As long as it's not overt, mm. 
we don't really want to know about it. And you you write about situational homosexuality yep. and that uh, these men were in incredibly dangerous. Mm. They were literally fighting for their lives yep. and for their country. And so it changed uh, almost the morality around them, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, the army is incredibly homosocial. It was and it is. It's an all-male environment. Um, and that opens up um, a form of camaraderie and mateship that's an intense bond. It's an intense platonic bond, bond. But perhaps it can also be a bond that can be a cover for a more intimate a relationship. And I think um, there seems to be there, there, there is evidence of that. Um, I write about a soldier um, from Christchurch, David Wilde, who is 19 in New Caledonia, finally realizes that he's homosexual. Uh, comes out to some older figures in his battalion who are also gay, from um, some Auckland um, men, and um, then falls in love with a soldier from Dunedin. Now, Wildey in his diaries, you know, is very clear. He doesn't believe Darkie Boyd is homosexual. Darkie Boyd um, is probably you know, your, your example of situational homosexuality. Uh, Wildey offers him sex, but he doesn't want anyone else to know about it. Um, so, uh, and of course, when he, when, when Ducky, when Ducky Boyd comes back to New Zealand, he does get married. He does have children. Um, that part of his life is, is shut. Aside, obviously, from the, from the horrible side of war, you talk about how homosexuality or the war was good in some Mm. respects for homosexuals because they were away from uh, their environments yeah. and there was now an opportunity to find other people and also to ins- experiment and, and to play. Yeah, you're away from small town New Zealand where there is no privacy, where everyone knows your business, where uh, perhaps they're more conservative, more intolerant. Um, so suddenly you're in this, this uh, new situation with strangers, um, Maybe at times there's a lack of privacy, but it seems to be that these men do find chances to be alone uh, up in the Pacific. Um, uh, David Wilde, who we just talked about, um, there's a street, uh, so sorry, a stream, there's a, there's a river that comes uh, past the camp, and they find their own private water holes. He finds one, he calls it Shangri-La, and um, he and uh, Ducky Boyd go and... Um, swim naked there, they sunbathe there, and it's the place that they um, have sex. And of course, Harold actually did have a lover. Yes, and Harold has a lover uh, from Oakuni, um, Bob Murphy, uh, called nicknamed Spud because uh, of the connection with Oakuni. Uh, and he's he's masculine. He loves rugby. He loves drinking beer, um, but he's prepared to go in, into that relate into that relationship. He also gets married to a woman after coming back to New Zealand. I, I wanted to, I'm just talking at my notes here because there was a story that um, stuck out. Uh, it, it's not a, a large part of the book, but about Mike and Pat. Yeah. Uh, I found this in uh, Auckland's War Memorial Museum in an archive left by a man, um, Reginald de Grave. Uh, and it's quite an extraordinary story. I would have loved to have published the whole story. Um, de Grave's um, very heterosexual. He's, um, uh, you know, he frequents the brothels. There's a story on the brothels. Um, and, um, you know, he kind of goes, you know, th- these people are very strange. They're, they're in my, my unit. 
Um, they don't socialize much. When we're staying on leave, they stay somewhere else. We all know that they're a couple. But he goes through a kind of epiphany in, this, in, in his memoir that, uh, and it's a tragic story. Um, they're on the front line. Uh, the Germans are using butterfly bombs uh, and one um, lands near them. It, it kills um, uh, one of the men and all that's left is his head uh, and the other cradles the head until they find a Catholic priest, uh, which he's determined he needs a Catholic priest. And then um, at, once, once the head is buried, he goes, the, the other, he goes behind a, um, a truck and shoots himself and is buried there too. So um, de Graaf chose to keep them anonymous um, it's all, you can almost identify who they are, but I chose to stay with how De Grave, um described them because he did that for a reason, presumably. It, it was quite remarkable reading it because yeah. where else would you find a story as as tragic but so filled with love? Yeah. And the fact that the 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 soldiers around buried buried, buried the, the surviving and and at the and at the very it. end they come forward and shoot their guns up towards the the enemy uh real you know there's a sort of a, a, a collective epiphany it's it's unspoken in a way that we understand the relationship and we honor it and and, and i'm not going to give it away but he writes um to go i think he's kind of a little it's quite moving reading his story it's tragic because it's suicide and it's um gut-wrenching stuff but at the same time um, it's very moving, I think, and and, and it's beautiful that mm. uh, in the, in this hellhole, mm. they're in the middle of of war, that straight soldiers are accepting mm. and honouring mm. these two men who were clearly in in a relationship mm. together, and and the, the the grief of losing his partner led to mm. his suicide. I, I think that's extraordinary, and and this is why I really love the book, and I love the, the, these kinds of explorations because it's so rare to find our yeah. stories. I think. A lot of, I mean, there, there will be lots of other stories that were unsaid. A lot of uh, veterans, when they returned from the war, didn't want to talk about their experiences or they highly edited it for their families and mm -hmm. their communities back here. I think Harold wasn't prepared to tell his story till that point in his life where, you know, essentially I'm interviewing him when he's 90. 91, 92. And at that point, he realized everyone's dead. Right. So he's not going to upset people if they did get married. He's not upsetting their wives. Even even their children now are, are passing. He outlived them all. Mm. And um, he was prepared to tell the story. And I think that Douglas, um, who I interviewed in London, was also more relaxed. Of course, as a... As a as, a writer as a historian I would have liked to have interviewed them 20 years beforehand <laughs> but I don't know whether they would have given me access to all the information they had uh, it seemed that I caught them at that time when they were right. kind of resigned to like okay if we don't tell if I don't give you the story now mm. it, it will be completely lost and but having got that story of course then I realized then once they had died I realized I have this story in it and I really feel it needs to be told um, and not only there was oral, so there's a lot of oral history that is behind the book uh, with all the interviews I did but then um, 
I have their photographs. Um, with Douglas, I have uh, his, his diary is in the um, Kippenberger Muse um, Library at the Wairu Army Museum uh, with hundreds of letters to his two aunts in Auckland who he was very close to. Um, and then I um, found through his family a chest of, of ephemera and more photographs, um, scripts from the concert party, which is the only scripts I've managed to find. There is none in any archives that were passed on. Um, and uh, his family also had hundreds of letters that he had written to his stepmother. So suddenly you have a lot of corroborating evidence, um, as well as, of course, you know, New Zealand has got this fantastic um, war histories that were put together after the war that are almost kind of micro histories because they are almost day by day by day by day um, incredibly thorough histories that also corroborate their stories um, and help build build that up um, and then finding the Wildy archive and finding a number of other ones it started all coming together and I realized okay we have to tell the story. So these shows uh, particularly the ones uh, during the war they're kind of like a variety show. Yeah, yeah. And what, what's fascinating is that these relatively overt gay men yeah. are dressing in drag, mm. and they are, they have these various well, names. Well, it's interesting, because Harold said he didn't do drag. He was a female impersonator, and he right. saw a real distinction between the two. If I mentioned the word drag, I usually got told off. And uh, you I also did not got do told drag, off. <laughs> say, yeah. But you also got told off if you used the word gay. Right? Yeah, he, he had... didn't like the, use, the word gay. His identity was he was homosexual. Uh, he saw, you know, gay as a very different term, as a politicised term that, that comes later, and he was not gay. He didn't like the word queer either. I think queer was a, was a very derogatory term it, yes. used against him, and he wasn't prepared to accept that as a term, hmm. which is, is, is a dilemma for a writer today because we have, you know, queer studies and queer theory, and we use that term. I have used the word queer in terms of queer culture, but I've actually... Um, I've done what Harold wanted and Douglas. Um, they were comfortable with that word homosexual, so I have used the word homosexual. I'm, I'm curious to see what the reaction to that is, because for me, I'm not that comfortable with the word homosexual because it, it, it medicalizes mm. um, same-sex attraction as an illness. It's this re almost redundant term in today's value system, yet these men used it really comfortably. It's, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose possibly maybe it was uh, different to queer mm. and, and faggot and all the, mm. the other mm. words that, that people would, would potentially use. Just coming back to them as, as female impersonators, though, yeah. what was the... Uh, it, it's extraordinary to me that, that straight culture, wider culture, is used to, particularly with pantomime, used mm. to men dressing up in women's clothing. And so... And they were extremely popular... Mm. in these shows I so there are, there are no women at the front line mm -hmm. um, what women went into World War II as, as nurses and, and supports are kept well back from the front line they're not there um, they're not in combat at this at this point in our history um, the first woman to die in combat is in Afghanistan so it's post human rights act um, where, yeah. where we, we now allow them full rights to serve in combat roles so those shows, um, they had orchestra. They had each, each, each concert party had an orchestra. Um, there was comedians. There were magicians. 
Um, there's kind of skits which make fun of the officers often. Um, there was a little bit of leveling uh, happening as they made fun of the hierarchy. It is a citizen's army and we're a very egalitarian society. And so it seemed really odd that people in our community might suddenly be thrust into leadership roles. Um, in the 36th Battalion and in, in Harold's Battalion, there's a, there's a, there's a, a Captain Stego who in South Dunedin was Harold's butcher. And in no way was Harold going to ever salute him. Uh, so those, those, the skits often made fun of that uh, inversion that happens right. as people get appointed to certain positions that perhaps in civilian life they don't have. Um, there's a lot of comedy about boosting morale. Um, the songs are the latest songs from the Hollywood movies. From from and and, and and British movies as well, um, and then there's this, the nostalgic songs that they've known for a while. So they dress they're often dressing up as, um, and particularly Ralph Dyer as people like Rita Hayward, um, Minnie of Trinidad, um, uh, Carmen Miranda. I think they're providing a comfort as much for the heterosexual soldier in the audience saying, you know, we're fighting for our families and back home, this is what life's like. Here, um, here's, the, here's the beautiful woman that we all want, we all want to date in, in, in a heteronormative sense back in, back in New Zealand. And, and, um, and here's mum, and here's your sister. Um, Douglas played the very plain Jane kind of <laughs> sidekick, never very glamorous. Um, and there were, you know, and 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 there was there is a room for those parts. So it was nostalgic for home, but it was about um, presenting um, skits and songs to rally us to go forward to fight the Japanese. And yet they would also be flirted with. So I give it, it it's yeah. almost like, like drag does today. It, it enables people to play in a safe way, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think definitely. And I think that for other, we use the word homosexual men who are sitting in the audience, uh, they're seeing it quite differently from their, their um, fellow colleagues who are heterosexual. They're seeing what could possibly be a queer man on stage dressing as a woman. All right. And of course, all these men had their own pet names for each other as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, so um, Harold is, um, his feminine camp name is Helena, <laughs> after Helena Rubinstein. Um, <laughs> Harold has a, has a large nose. It broke, uh, his, his brother beat him up, um, and it broke when he was a child, and he actually had to have an operation on his nose before entering the armed forces. Um, they had a requirement, I guess they thought the war was going to be like World War one and you had to be able to breathe in a gas mask which right. he couldn't he gets the operation and he he can and so he he enters the the war a little bit later in the 36th battalion um but um the nose meant that he was never a beautiful woman and so they all decide that he's helena after helena rubenstein <laughs> who they who was probably the richest woman in the world at the time but right. was also one of the ugliest <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, she, she's not beautiful. But he was proud of his legs, wasn't he? That yeah, was the... because he's a, a ballet student, so he had that kind of gymnast body, which I also think meant that when he is serving 
out of costume as a female impersonator. He's um, fit, athletic, on the route marches, up he goes, up the hill and back down again. Um, on Norfolk Island, he's required, uh, Batman suddenly were required to be able to shoot a gun to protect their officer. And um, he needs a little bit of um, help learning to do this, but he becomes um, one of the top um, sh um, shots uh, um, in, in ability to shoot a gun um, in his unit. So um, maybe that's the overcompensation that some uh, homosexual men do, where we try to be as, as good as everybody else. But he does, um, and so he he has that good fella status, right? Uh, which which brings him acceptance with everyone, and he's funny, and he can make jokes. He can probably put you down if you try <laughs> and make jokes towards him, um, and everyone likes that type of figure. I think they're all party people, and so um, in the in the downtime, they keep things going, right? They like to drink. They liked they liked to a joke. They liked to have fun, and I think that probably drew people around them, um, heterosexual people as well as homo other homosexual soldiers. I wanted to ask you about uh, it's to do with the with the process of creating this. So you spent a lot of time interviewing them, uh, studying the archives, reading letters, looking at photographs, and and I know uh, as a as a journalist and interviewing people that. It's, it can be very intimate mm -hmm. in a way because you're asking people about their lives. Yep. You're asking questions. And so I'm wondering about your connection to those men. How, did, how do you feel about that? Would, would, you, would you have classified them as friends? Or I, I think in the end with Harold particularly, uh, um, yeah, we, we did become friends. Um, you know, I would do you know, an, uh, an interview with him but then I would go down a couple of times, um, take some nice cakes from Ponsonby Road, um, some ghettos and things like that. That he loved, he loved food, and he loved uh, he loved the idea of beautiful um, treats. Um, he would talk about in Egypt, Groppy's uh, Cafe. There was Groppy's Cafe and Groppy's Garden Cafe, which were beautiful French patisseries, and he was very nostalgic for that and nostalgic for. That, that, that kind of patisseries he saw in France and, 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 and England. So I would go down just for social visits because I think you need to have that connection. Uh, I would bring down little bits of information of what I'm finding and we'd talk about things and say, well, in the next interview we do, we can talk about that and, and record that. So um, I, I did become, I did feel close to him. Um, I was very upset when he finally, when he, when he did pass. Um, uh, it was really, really quite sad moment for me. Um, I probably wasn't ready for him to go at that point, um, but he was quite ill at that time. Um, his health had deteriorated, um, and he he had slowed down. He was losing his eyesight. Um, a little bit of his hearing was lost as well. Um, he had been living with HIV for a long time, mm -hmm. so that's that's interesting. Um, that um, that was part of his later experience. Although I don't really touch on that because I'm I've, I've, the book finishes in 1959 with the three men in London moving apart. So it's quite an extraordinary process for yeah. you that you have gone through this journey with them. Yeah, it becomes a collaborative uh, 
piece of research because it becomes our research because Harold would also then lead me on to certain uh, things I needed to find out um, as much as me leading him and asking him questions to go in certain directions then he would um, suggest different uh, ways that we could continue the research. So now that you've gone through that journey with these men and you've got a book <laughs> and you're, you're talking about the book, yeah. obviously, as, as part of the, 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 the process of the rollout of a book. So, so where do you feel? Do, do you have a sense of completion with the, with the story now? Do you? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really pleased that they have their story out there. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased that uh, I've incorporated all those men, that they are all now in the historical record. Um, uh, I think that there's, you know, the problem with queer history is there's a, an absence. And so mm -hmm. it's about filling those gaps. And there's lots of gaps to fill. Um, and I hope that this goes some way to filling the gap during the Second World War. Well, as, as I said when we began, I think it's an incredible book. And it's, uh, it's fantastic to be able to read a time that we weren't alive, mm. but there were people like us living mm. lives and full lives. And so, again, congratulations and um, wish you all the best with, the, with, this, um, with this book. Thank you. That was Brent Coots discussing his new book, Crossing the Lines, which was published on the 4th of August 2020. I'm Andrew Whiteside. Thank you for listening.